Grace is yours and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God serving as our text, our second lesson from 1 Timothy chapter 6, as previously read. In Christ Jesus, who gave his very life, that he might share with us the riches of heaven, dear fellow redeemed. Have you seen the TurboTax commercial featuring the young man who is heavily invested in cryptocurrency? While at work, he gets a notification on his cell phone that his investment has gone through the roof. And suddenly he's shouting, I'm a millionaire! As he packs up the boxes in his desk, he can quit his job now. But then seconds later, he gets another notification. And all the gains on his investment have disappeared. Now he must come to the realization, I'm not a millionaire. It's back to work for that young fellow. Can you relate to him? Maybe you don't go running around shouting you're a millionaire, but perhaps you have experienced some reversal of fortune. Maybe you finally got that long-awaited raise, only to see it eaten up now in the rising cost of inflation. Are you retired or about to retire? Have you looked at your 401k recently? How does it make you feel when you see that the gains of the last few years have have all gone away? Are you filled with a sense of fear? Are you worried about your financial security? Well, I've got some good news for you today. We're going to get some financial advice from an unlikely source, the Apostle Paul. Yes, St. Paul steps in to serve as our financial consultant, and what he has to say will prove to be a blessing to all of us, regardless of our age or circumstances, whether we are young or old, whether we are rich or not so rich. Paul urges all of us to go for great gain, and then goes on to show us that this gain will be realized through contentment and in godliness. To help us be content, Paul reminds us of our humble beginnings. He says, for we brought nothing into the world. How often we forget that. We came here with nothing. And more to the point, we were helpless. We couldn't feed or clothe ourselves or provide anything for ourselves. And yet, here we are. How did we survive? Well, you know. Even though you weren't thinking about it at the time, someone was busy providing for you. Can you even remember how that felt as a kid? How content you were in life? We weren't thinking about bills or bank account balances. We trusted our parents 
imperfect though they were, to care for us. And they did a pretty good job. How much more we can trust our perfect God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, Paul says. Contentment comes from trusting that our God knows all of our needs, great and small, and better yet, knows exactly how and when to meet them. When we believe that our loving God will not fail us, we can be content, not just with the food, clothing, and shelter he provides, but even with the means by which he provides these things. We can be satisfied with our work and with our paycheck. And as an added bonus, our sleep, says King Solomon, will prove to be sweet. So, what is wrong with me? Why do I have sleepless nights? Why are there days when I dread my work? Why do I worry so much? Why? Well, because I have bought into one of the biggest lies out there. The one that says that I am the master of my own fate. And as such, I've somehow seemed to convince myself that if only I would gather enough material wealth for myself, then my life would be happier and my future more secure. Have you fallen for the same lie? Here's the problem with it. When we begin to think this way, well, then we also begin to love and trust money and what it can do for us more than we love and trust our God. And that is just so messed up. Don't take it from me. Listen, listen again to the richest man who has ever lived. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. What King Solomon says goes for all of us, whether we have a little or a lot. When we love money, we're just never going to be content. We're just never going to have enough. Now understand, the problem is not money. In fact, money is a fantastic gift from God, given like all his gifts, for our enjoyment. Money's not the culprit. The love of money is the problem. For as Paul points out, that's what's at the root of all kinds of evil. Paul says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Amen, right? We know all about that. We've heard stories of people who have embezzled funds from work, cheated on their taxes. Why? Because they want to keep more money for themselves. We maybe know people who have become workaholics to the point where they neglect spouse and children 
and yet convince themselves that that same neglected family will thank them one day when they're living in a nicer house or riding in a newer car or going on that great vacation, then they'll be happy. Will they? How many homes have been ruined by the love of money? How many children have been taught by such a poor example that if they want to be happy, they too will need to devote themselves to pursuing wealth? The love of money is a clear and present danger so much so that it threatens even the most important of our relationships, our relationship with God. Again, Paul writes, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul's not suggesting that one day we're going to wake up and suddenly not remember who Jesus is. That's not the way this works. It's much more subtle than that. As wealth, as money gains a more prominent place in our lives, we become more and more arrogant and self-reliant until we get to that point when we're no longer turning to God for help because we imagine we don't have to. Or on the other hand, if, if we devote all of our energies to becoming rich and it doesn't happen, well then we become bitter with God and envious of his gifts to others. We begin to, to question his love for us and think he's holding out on us. And then we stop paying attention to what he's telling us. You see, the, the result in either scenario is the same. We end up causing ourselves tremendous grief. Because when troubles come, and they always come, don't they? We've got no place to go. We don't know where to turn. We have bankrupted ourselves spiritually. We've run out of faith. Having long, long neglected word and sacrament and long forgotten God's promised love and forgiveness. And my friends, without these, well, then we'd be forever lost in hell. Of course, Paul doesn't want that to happen to any of us. And so he not only reminds us of how we came into the world, but he also reminds us of how we're going to leave it, all of us, namely penniless. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. There's a reality check for you. When all is said and done, when my life here on earth is over, when I've been dead for five minutes, what is it about the life I lived here that will matter most to me? Will it matter that I left this world with a tidy sum in my bank account? Will my earthly titles and achievements mean anything to me? Nothing at all because there aren't any banks or trophy cases on the other side of the grave. To Paul's point then, if these things can't come with us, then they cannot bring us great and lasting gain. 
So should we despise them? Well, of course not. But neither should we make them our Lord and Master. Instead, we'll value the treasures God gives, great or small, as blessings from him. And we'll be content. We can be content knowing that what God gives us is exactly the right amount when it comes to our relationship with him. He gives us exactly what we need. Never too much, never too little, always just right. Believing this is great gain. You know what else is satisfying? Using these treasures he gives to honor him. And so Paul urges us to go for great gain, gain that we're going to find in godliness. Paul says to young Pastor Timothy, command your congregation to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. When Paul says command, he's not suggesting that Pastor Timothy or any of his pastors start shouting orders like army generals. The word command has as its root meaning the idea of instruction. In basic training, new recruits are given commands meant to instruct them in how to serve and survive as soldiers. And so it is in our service to our God. Our God wants us, who are his followers, to be godly. In other words, he wants us, who have been recreated in his image at our baptism, to be like him and to do what he does. And of course, you know our God always does what is good and right. He wants his people to do what is good and right. We do good when we use the money and wealth he gives us to supply the physical and spiritual needs of the people who depend on us. It is a godly thing to use our money and wealth to pay our bills and to meet our financial obligations. This pleases our God. And you know what else pleases him? When we take the things he gives us and we share them with others. Now, I don't know about you, but this is the part of the instruction that I find a bit more difficult. Maybe we all do, huh? Because we came into this world so sinful and selfish. From little on, we've struggled to let others use our stuff to say nothing of giving it away for keeps. So today, maybe we find ourselves in the same situation as that rich young man who came to have a talk with Jesus, remember? He was so proud of himself and the way he was keeping the commandments. He was sure that by them he was earning a place in heaven. He was so conscientious that he was checking in with the great teacher, Jesus, to make sure that there wasn't anything missing or overlooked in his life. And in the greatest love, Jesus said to him, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. 
I share these words of Jesus with you today because I think they so well describe the purpose and nature of godliness in a Christian's life. If somehow we're living under the illusion that we are to be godly as Christians in order to help secure a place for ourselves in heaven, we just have it all wrong. (laughs) And Jesus wants us to know if we're going to accomplish that, then we have to have a perfect spirit of self-sacrifice all the time, giving and giving and giving. And of course, none of us can do that because we came into this world sinners. Our godliness will never save us. But we are saved by Christ's godliness. In the greatest act of generosity of all times, Jesus lived a rich life of perfection as our substitute and then pledged the benefits of that life to us in full. What does that mean? Well, it means that in God's grade book, Jesus gives us all the credit for his love, his contentment, his generosity. Generosity that didn't stop with this gift of perfection. It couldn't. If we were going to be saved, we needed more than that from him, and he gave it. We needed a perfect sacrifice for sin. And so generous Jesus, in godliness, offered up his own life on the altar of the cross, where he paid the full price of our greed and arrogance, our worry and discontentment, our stinginess and selfishness. He suffered the tortures of hell itself until all our sins, all the world's sins, were paid once and for all. And then to let us know that it had happened, that it had taken place, that this great sin debt of ours has been canceled. He rose from the grave, the conqueror of sin, death, and hell. Jesus did all of this for our greatest gain so that now through faith in him we have as his free gift all the godliness we need to lay hold of the life that is truly life, forever life, that starts here on earth. And that for us Christians is expressed in a a life of gratitude and thanks to God as we share what we have in Christ with our fellow sinners. People who will hear the good news about Jesus and by its power, become our eternal friends and family. They are the treasure that waits for us in heaven. And this, my friends, is all that will matter five minutes after we have died. Because that's when we will be meeting and greeting all those precious souls, family members, neighbors, and so many others who will have been blessed in part by the investment that you and I are making in the gospel ministry of Christ and his church right now. This is what it means to go for great gain, to live content and godly lives, counting always on the holiness and forgiveness of Christ, not only to cover our failures, but at the same moment to supply us with everything we need to reflect his love and so honor his saving name.
now and forever. Amen. Thanks so much for worshiping with us today. We hope that God's word has strengthened your faith. To help us know more about the reach of our efforts here at Manav, we hope that you'll like and subscribe to our YouTube and Facebook pages and that you also sign our online friendship register to let us know that you're listening today. God bless and keep you.